Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Megan Markle. It's April 5th, 2022. We're at the Shehalem Cultural Center in Newburgh. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, the first and biggest question, as you probably know, is why wine? Why wine? Why not wine? I mean, I think, I love that wine brings people together. And I love that, uh, you know, you can sit around a table, sit around a yard, um, have a glass of wine, and that experience stays with you um, and sometimes sometimes the wine leads the story and sometimes the conversation and the friends lead the story um, and I just I enjoy I enjoy it a lot um, and it's just always been a passion of mine since my early 20s smack up a little bit and talk about kind of life before that so tell us about uh, upbringing where were you born and raised and uh, at what point did you kind of go off into the world I was born in Seattle Washington um, lived kind of all over the state of Washington until I was about 13, then went to uh, Sacramento for high school, um, then moved down to Southern California and got to go to uh, Pepperdine University. Um, and then after graduating from Pepperdine, stayed in the whole Southern California area for a few years um, and then then moved to Washington, D.C., where I really started to get into wine. Um, and then uh, then made the jump into the wine industry after my time in D.C. by moving back to, um, not back to, but moving to Portland, mm -hmm. the Portland area. Moved to Beaverton in Hillsborough and uh, opened a wine shop with my, uh, with my parents and my sister and brother-in-law. So family wine shop um, in about 2005. What took you to D.C.? D.C. was, um, I always like to say that you have chapters in your life, right? And it's your professional chapter, that was my first professional chapter, and that was uh, politics. And so I worked, um, worked in politics and did campaigns in Southern California and then had the opportunity to get to work for President Bush um, in Washington, D.C. when he was elected. And so um, I did that, and I worked at the Department of Transportation for about... Four years, a little over four years. What was that like? It was transformative. It was a whirlwind. It was, you know, working, well, A, working in politics is a whirlwind at any time. I can't imagine what it's like in these, these times. Um, but, you know, we were there about six months prior to 9-11, and so then most of the years were spent um, you know, trying to start TSA and um, do a lot of those those programs and a little stressful, um, a little busy. Uh, some of it's all a blur a little bit sometimes, but um, met amazing people, worked with amazing people, really glad to serve my country in that, in that way. Um, and uh, no regrets at all there, but it definitely did lead me to, uh, to wine a little bit more. Yeah. Um, Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, Living in D.C. and Virginia, I was in North, I lived in Northern Virginia, um, really got into the Virginia wine scene on weekends when I had some time off and got to travel around and um, t 
taste some of their wonderful Viognier's, um, their Saval Blancs, their delicious um, different reds, some Horton Norton, um, all sorts of things like that. It was really fun to do um, with friends. And it just kind of like was something that I thought of more and more and more and I would read and you know, I never took any official classes or anything like that, but it just became a passion of mine. And I built a wine cellar in my house um, and then just started filling it up and learning more. And um, then I was like, what do I want to do with my life? Do I want to stay in politics? Maybe not. So decided to uh, decided to bail on that after the first administration um, term was done and moved to uh, Beaverton and open a wine shop in Hillsborough with my family, which was a totally crazy idea and looking back on it. <laughs> I mean, really crazy. Like, why don't we all just start a wine shop? Yeah, but we not? did. Uh, one more question before we get to that, because I'm really curious about that experience, but you mentioned kind of thinking about wine more and more and just becoming more and more a part of your life. Was there something about wine specifically that appealed to you at that time? Was there a, a reason it kind of built in your life that way? I don't know. It's a really good question. There probably is. There's probably something deep and meaningful and something I haven't really expressed. Mm -hmm. And um, but I I think for me it just it just represented again that kind of that culmination of bringing people together that I care about and friends, family, loved ones, and something that you can share and have that shared experience together with and enjoy. Um, and then I just love to learn. Like, it was just fun to taste new things. Like, I still, I mean, I still love to taste new things, but it's not, it's not the same as it is when you're first getting into wine and you're like learning what those flavor profiles are all about. And I think, I think that was really a neat time in my life to be able to share that with others. Um, yeah. So as you're, as you're deciding, you're thinking about the future, how did you land in, on Oregon as, a, as the place to be next? It, was, it, was it because of Oregon wine or was it for other reasons? It was um, a little bit because of Oregon wine, but um, it was more um, based off of friends and family that were living in the Portland area. Um, a lot of sorority sisters from college um, either were born and raised here and moved back here after college or had just transplanted themselves. So we kind of had that base of um, getting to know some people or having known some people before we started a crazy business of our own. Um, so that was that was kind of a, the, the appeal. And we and I definitely wanted to get back to the Northwest, having you know been born in Seattle and um, you know raised on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. It just made a lot of sense. Portland had that that feel that I really enjoyed, and I still enjoy. And I'm glad that I'm glad we made that move. Mm -hmm. What were your impressions of Oregon wine at that point? I know, I think back. Um, I didn't, I, I don't think I fully grasped how rooted the community is in supporting the local wines at the time. Um, but I loved that and I learned to really appreciate that and respect that, which I still absolutely do. And it's been amazing to see the evolution over the years. Um, and just elevating a worldwide the reputation of Oregon Pinot Noir and Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Um, now we've got the Chardonnay and the sparkling wines and all of that. Like now you can go places and it's like people know the name Willamette Valley. They know how they, they know it's pronounced Willamette Valley. They don't say 
you know, how do you say that? Mm -hmm. Willamette. Is it Willamette? Mm -hmm. No, it's Willamette. <laughs> you know, like you don't find yourself saying that anymore, mm -hmm. which is um, kind of means we've 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 gotten to where we want to be on some level, right? We're we're getting to where we want to go. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot that's out there for um, for Willamette Valley, um, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't fully grasp that when we opened the shop. But I absolutely loved it, and I, I was thinking about that this weekend. Um, I was out at Atticus Vineyard. Um, I'm part of their wine club since they started, and um, I remember when Zamana walked into my wine shop for the first time, and she had her very first vintage to try to sell to me, and that was an o, her 05 vintage, and mm -hmm. so it's it's just one of those really cool things where I was like, oh my gosh, how long have we known each other? And then you start to go back and you're like, we've been friends mm -hmm. for over 15 years. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's awesome to see other people's brands grow and their businesses thrive. And just to have those deep roots mm -hmm. in this valley personally probably means the most to me. So you decided to, to start a wine shop with your family. How, how did that come about? And tell me about the kind of the logistics of getting it started. <laughs> that was my crazy idea. Um, my sister um, and brother-in-law, um, who he had just married into the family, he was game. Um, he's like, yeah, sure, let's all move to Oregon. You know, he loved wine too. My sister liked wine. She's like, yeah, let's do it. We, and then it wasn't hard to convince my parents to, to get on board with that. They were, they were tired of flying back and forth to DC. Um, so that was kind of the thing. They're like, sure, let's do it. Crazy. And once you, and how did you get it started? How did you make all the like all the kind of arrangements? Uh, we uh, went with a, a franchise at the time um, called Vino 100, and so it kind of was you know 100 great wines from around the world for 25 dollars or less. Great concepts, hard to make any money at. Mm -hmm. You know, like obviously knowing the margins on wine and um, being very thin and. Um, and then of course, Oregon wine being more expensive. At the time, it wasn't quite as expensive as it is now, but um, yeah, it was it was a great concept. And so at least I had a framework for building the business that was kind of provided. And then we had a lot of freedom to make it our own and choose our own labels that made sense. Um, and so that was that was a nice part of it. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a great concept, and I'm really glad we did it. But yeah, you know, doing it right before a recession. <laughs> it's poor, you know? poor timing. Yeah, poor timing. It's timing. Timing. But what did you take away from it? What did you What did you learn from the experience? Oh, for years I thought I was the biggest failure professionally. Like it was, it was like my one big. I really messed up. Although after years of thinking about it too and processing it's like no i didn't mess up i did everything did everything i possibly could to make that business successful mm -hmm. um but it was the recession and like that's just what happens sometimes mm -hmm. um you know money money dries up when it's for optional things in life and uh, we were affected and that's so no regrets and then i think that the thing that makes me happiest is that we didn't um we didn't 
end up losing our love of wine over it. I do know some other wine shop owners that went through similar experiences mm -hmm. that walked away from wine and then walked away like from even drinking it anymore and I was like that's to me that that breaks my heart mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. like I, I I don't equate the two together at all so I feel I feel poorly for them mm -hmm. What did you learn about wine, especially on the retail end of things, from that? Uh, obviously, we, we've heard many stories of, of the difficulties and the, and, the, and the kind of the challenges of selling wine retail. What, what did you kind of take away from it in terms of, uh, you know, if I had to do this again, I'd do it differently, or uh, this, is, this, is, this is good for me to know going forward? Yeah, I think uh, what I learned is I respect retail small businesses of all kinds. Like, I will never, ever look at retail small businesses the same way because it's you're just always you're always on and you're you're working almost seven days a week if if not seven days a week you know even if you're closed for a day then you're placing orders to make sure that you've got your delivery set for the, you know and then you're you're helping customers until eight o'clock at night and trying to trying to find work-life balance is very difficult when you have a retail store I think um, and I think that that's what I learned about this side of the business is like when people when suppliers now being a supplier you know if I go into a shop and I'm trying to sell my wine to someone like I have a different perspective because I know what it's like to be that buyer and I know that the pressures and the responsibilities that they may have that day and the way they may now the way they may treat you like of course you should always treat people correctly and with kindness um, and professionalism but you know you never know what they're up against mm -hmm. and so tasting your wine might not be on the top of their priority list that day so it is it, it's nice to have that viewpoint that 360 of like okay this is this is what they're going through because there's not there is not a lot of people on this side of the business that have done as many angles that, as I have, I think. And that's um, that's a little unique. And so it's, it's a nice viewpoint to have. Um, and I have friends that'll ask me kind of the same sort of questions sometimes, like, what, what do I need to do? How do I, how do I approach this? And I'm happy to help. So after the shop, <coughs> excuse me, what came next? Next was, um, my next chapter, which was my um, my nonprofit chapter, um, was really difficult to find a job in the Portland area after closing um, in mid 2009. Um, so at the beginning of 2010, I moved to Orange County, back to California, and started doing um, de development and communications for a um, nonprofit that serves families with minor age children um, that are experiencing homelessness um, and hunger, and uh, called Families Forward. So I worked for almost almost three years um, doing that, and absolutely love that work. There's a lot of actually a lot of similarities between sales and nonprofit fundraising or fundraising of any kind um, and so transferable skills um, oftentimes and then of course you know you get to actually be serving people and seeing the difference that it makes in their lives and so that was was a great experience um, was glad to have that but I it did make me yearn for home here mm -hmm. in Portland because Portland had become home so eventually wanted to come back 
and so I did. What brought you back? Um, kind of just made the decision of like, it's time to go. Like my nephews are up here and um, I was like, I just don't want to stay anymore in Orange County. And so, uh, lovely place, beautiful people, but uh, Oregon was calling. Mm -hmm. So I was like, let's just go and I'll find something else. And so I did. So I came back up and continued a little bit more nonprofit work for Greater Portland Inc. Um, and did some of their communications and marketing. Um, and that was a really cool experience, um, short-lived experience, but it was a good experience to see how government and nonprofit work together for economic development for the area. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, but then I, you know, life happens and people die and things, you know, like your perspective changes, right? And uh, I had a couple of um, big deaths in my life that year and just decided I needed to take a little time off and walk away and figure things out. And I guess wine kind of kept calling in the back of my mind, being back home. And um, so I just took time to explore that and decided, yep, I'm getting back in. So back into wine it was, and I've stayed. <laughs> Once you made that decision to get back in, were you, did you have a, a path in mind for what you wanted to do? What, what, was it just anything wine, or was it like a specific thing you were thinking about? It was kind of a specific thing I was thinking about. Um, I, w I really did want to get back in, and I'm like, I think I want to be a national sales manager um, for, for a Willamette Valley supplier. I knew absolutely I wanted to work for Willamette Valley Winery directly, and I said, how do I get there? And that was one of the interesting things of our industry still struggles with um, pathways for, uh, even though so many of us come from outside of the wine world into the wine world, it, the skills are um, usually, while they're transferable, they're not respected. And I don't know if respect is the right word completely, but um, it's not honored, like you can't be like the CEO of a waste management company, right? And then the CEO of a coffee company. Like where that happens all the time in the real world, can't do that in wine. That very, very rarely happens in wine. And so you almost have to start back at the beginning mm -hmm. and start at the bottom. And so I knew that's what I probably had to do. And so working in a tasting room and helping with some marketing and sales in that way, kind of just opened the door again to meet more people and it, it's hard to find those opportunities to become a national sales manager for when you haven't done it before that's the other thing too yeah it's like if you haven't done it but how do you get to do it right like so I've had a million people ask me that over the times how did you get that job well yeah I would just talk to somebody and talk to somebody and like you know they took a chance on me and I took a chance on them and you know, you kind of go with that. Mm -hmm. So if you take us through the path a little bit of, of uh, sort of from where you started to where you where you ended up, did you have, you mentioned Willamette Valley. I want to be in the Willamette Valley mm -hmm. National Sales Manager. That does narrow it down quite a bit. Um, tell mm -hmm. us how you got through and, and, and where you kind of ended up. Yeah, um, I think I just knew that I loved this industry so much and having met so many great people like Zamena from Atticus and 
and Don Haggie from Vidon. I remember when he walked in the store and started selling his first vintage to me. You know, I'm like, you literally were a NASA ro rocket scientist. Like, how cool is that? Like, I've got this rocket scientist that's selling me wine. Um, and you know, all sorts of people. Um, and so I was like, I, I just, it felt like home. It felt like family. And so it was just trying to figure out what winery was the right one to possibly start to get into the door with and um, ended up at Evening Lands Vineyards in their tasting room in Dundee. And really enjoyed, enjoyed my work. I love those wines. Um, it's a great experience to do that. And then that led me to um, getting to know um, Tom and Deb Mortimer across the hallway in their tasting room for Le Cadeau. And then that's when they offered me a job about nine months later um, to work for them as, as a national sales manager. So that was a really great opportunity and I was there for five years. Was it what you thought it would be? Yes. I mean, yes and no. I mean, it was great. It really is great. Like, it, but it's 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 work, right? Like everybody always says, "Oh, isn't it great to work in wine?" And it was like Tom and I used to always joke, like, if they could only see us getting up at 3 a.m. with three cases of wine and trying to check it onto an airplane, and then you're, you know, like, yeah. I'm like, it would be nice if we sold jewelry. That's easy to to carry. We used to always talk about that. He's like, if we just sold really lightweight, small widgets, when I go, yeah, but it wouldn't be as cool. It wouldn't be as fun. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, it'd be easier to carry, but <laughs> then you can't sit with customers and, you know, taste them on your wines throughout the day in great cities around the country. So yeah, no, it was, it was great. It just, yeah, the travel schedule is a lot, but, uh, but I, I did, I enjoyed it a lot made great friends all over this country and, and got to see how the Willamette Valley is portrayed and accepted and sold um, in, in some parts of the country very differently than others. Um, but for the most part, it just con continue to see it evolve and become um, more highly respected and that's, that's exciting to see. When it came to the that job itself, and especially with like with the travel and everything like that, tell me about the sort of I guess sort of the progress through. Like you, you mentioned for for Willamette Valley in general, seeing the seeing the progress, did it get easier? Was it was it was the job getting easier as you were going through? Was the recognition happening kind of in real time for you? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it was really cool to see how, yeah, like you, the first year, like I think that was in 2015 for me, um, you know, you, you get some of the the mispronunciation of Willamette, you know, like by, by wine buyers or even mispronunciation of the word Pinot Noir, right? Like, and they just keep saying it over and over and you're trying not to cringe and you're trying to like, you try not to overcorrect them like too many times, but you're also like, oh, can we just say it correctly? That'd be nice, <laughs> just be nice. Um, and that stopped, you know, eventually. Mm -hmm. um, 
or you know and it just was it's just was nice to see that um people actually then would ask about um they'd ask about pino camp right they're like how do i get a ticket to pino camp i want to go to oregon pino camp and did, and so i would hear that all the time and um Lakita was is not involved with pino camp and so i was always really jealous of those pino camp wineries right like i was like oh i'm so jealous of that and like I admit now I'm super pumped that my day job working for Willamette Valley Winers Association, I get to plan Pinot Camp. So that is my main job um, and I love that. So it's, it's fun to have that come full circle and get to be a part of that this year and bring that back online after three years of not having it during the pandemic. If you can't beat them, join them, right? Right, exactly, right? <laughs> I was like, ah, you know, because they're like, oh, who are we going to invite to Pinot Camp? I'm like, I'm like, I got a list for you. <laughs> I got a list. If I had a dollar for every time someone asked me how to get into Pinot Camp, which is awesome to, to see, right? Like in the fact that there's 270 campers that come from around the world. Um, we have 42 states represented this year, I think. And um, I don't even know how many countries. That's amazing. So, yeah, amazing. it's exciting. I have some OPC questions I'm going to come back to, yeah. but before we do, I'm curious about, you mentioned kind of the earlier, the how hard it is to get in, just kind of jump parallel into wine, that you had to kind of work your way back up. As you got to be a national sales manager, did you, what was unique about that position versus other things you had done? What was unique to wine that maybe you had to either had to learn or had to kind of relearn as you were in that position that was different from other, other industry, other, other things you had worked in? Hmm. Or was there anything? I mean, I don't know if there was too much that was different or unique to wine. I think, I think I was just reminded of the fact of some of the similarities between going back to fundraising and sales and just the fundamentals of communicating with people. Um, the eye contact, the doing more listening than talking. More listening usually means better sales. And there's a lot of people that don't get that. Um, you want to you listen to that buyer. And maybe having been in the buyer's seat, that also gave me that perspective of like, don't tell me what I'm drinking. Don't tell me what I'm tasting. Don't tell me how many cases are produced. I will ask you that if I want to, right? Like, mm -hmm. let the buyer lead. You are in their, you're in their living room or their kitchen or their back storeroom of a liquor store or wherever you're tasting. Um, let them lead it. Mm -hmm. You're their guest. Um, you're sharing your wine, but you don't have to be the only dog and pony show. So you mentioned you're now at the WVWA. How did that come about? That was a great um, serendipitous opportunity. I came on board. Morgan had asked me to um, if I had some free time this last fall. And uh, she's like, do you want to help us out, do some part-time stuff? And I said, sure, absolutely. That would be great um, while I was getting my, my brand up and going. Um, and then it led to full-time as of the beginning of this year. So in January, I went full-time and it's been great. It's been great. And they're so supportive, a wonderful team. Um, I, I just love, I love, it, it's really cool to see how my career's come kind of full circle. Um, 
with this because like yeah like going back and thinking about when I was at Greater Portland and I was making that transition if I'm going to get back into wine I mean this where I am right now is exactly where I probably would have said I dreamed to be even though in my head at the time I didn't know that mm -hmm. um, but this is exactly I, I love this industry and the, the people in this community I so being able to advocate and help grow that um, and represent our members and it's just really really a true blessing and uh, something I do not take for granted so what is your role there and what do you kind of see as you look ahead for the impact you're gonna be able to make I am the trade relations and special projects manager and I think having taking my years of national sales experience helps me with that trade relations side of things um, knowing people across the country knowing different distributors knowing how the markets work um, with our trade um, three-tier sales system etc um, that's really helpful um, I look forward to eventually as um, things are going to come back online for events for us um, outside of OPC come this June. Um, we'll start planning some Pinot in the Cities again in different cities around the country for 2023. Um, and that'll fall under my purview as well. Um, currently, I'm also in charge of Oregon Wine Month for the WVWA, um, which is also great. It right makes up. a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Few weeks away. Few weeks away. We got yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's fun. So to be able to to do that and just amplify Oregon wine in general through that campaign, as well as our um, WVWA wines, it's um, it's a real privilege. It's fun to see. It's fun to see how the trade has really started to incorporate it. Now being the tenth year of Oregon Wine Month, um, you can really start to see some of the traction and. Um, the growth of that program across the country and that it's starting to take real meaning to retailers um, and they can see the ROI from it which is you know which is all what we want to do is help people make more money and sell more Oregon wine. Sure. So you mentioned Oregon Pinot Camp coming back after an, an absence uh, obviously so we'll start about Pinot Camp first. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's, it's one of your Oregon's more unique and interesting things uh, going back quite a ways. Uh, tell me about as you're bringing it back this year, um, what is there, is there is it is it just like a return to the past? Are there new things you're trying out? What, what, what is it about 2022 Oregon Pinot Camp that's gonna be kind of interesting and unique? Uh, I think everybody's really excited and looking forward to being back in person again, right? Like, you know, getting on the bus and having the big the big dinners, the big salmon bake at Stoller, and the wonderful dinner at Anna Mee, um, welcome reception at Sokol Blosser. So a lot of the same, a lot of the same things, and mm -hmm. keeping to the tradition, but also um, incorporating a few new things. Um, this year we're going to be based at Linfield University, your uh, your home hometown um, uh, place there, and uh, yeah, we're really excited about um, being in McMinnville and. So we are adding a new event for the campers um, on the final day of camp. Um, we're going to do a giant brunch um, in downtown McMinnville 
and uh, um, it'll be a lot of fun to uh, to have kind of a close off a couple streets and have a little bit of a street fair brunch feel for them with some local vendors um, that sort of thing awesome. um, be really fun so but mostly keeping things pretty set to to what we usually do <laughs> yeah so Pino camp it's going to be great. I think, I mean, we're, we are changing up a few things um, in terms of workshop-wise as well. Um, putting a little more emphasis on doing a sparkling wine flight for the campers, a workshop on that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, that's one of the cool new things. But yeah, it's, it's amazing to see how that, how the whole structure of Oregon Pinot Camp works. And we have 52 host wineries. We have 19 members of the steering committee from those wineries. Um, and they, then we have like eight different subcommittees under that. Um, so it is really a all hands on deck, volunteer, um, completely run by the wineries that, run, that, that are participating. It, it's, it's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier, you, you, you gave a little teaser earlier about building your brand. Uh, tell us about your wine brand and how that came to be. Yeah, I mean, because the world needs another wine brand, right? Like, but I think I'd always wondered what it would be like to have my own, right? Like when you're selling other people's wine, it's wonderful and I love that, but I also like it starts to make you think what's missing out there and I think traveling the national market for me, I started to realize um, what is missing out there a little bit from the Willamette Valley standpoint. Um, and while I love Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, my passion is, is sparkling wine um, and then too, having worked in this industry so many years, it's important to be kind to your liver. Um, I think we all could use a little less alcohol in our lives, so focusing on uh, a low alcohol sparkling brand was kind of really where I wanted to go. And so that is what Well Played Wines is about. It's always going to be sparkling wines only. Um, and currently I've got two low alcohol um, bubbles that we're releasing this month. Once you decided that was something you wanted to do, tell me, take me through the steps of actually making it happen, of finding a place and a name and, and finding grapes and all of the things you have to do to before it gets in the bottle. Yeah, I think, um, you know, having worked in this industry for so long, it, it's helpful to, to know so many different people. And so I had a short list of if I win and if I ever pulled the trigger on this, like of who I would approach and, um, I approached Siler Varnum of Varnum Vintners in Amity. Um, Siler and Tara have been friends since basically the day they moved up here from Arizona when he was working at Angela and I was working at Evening Land at the time. And he started his own brand a number of years ago, does a lot of force carbonated um, bubbles, um, which I've been a wine member, club member for a long time and I love love those wines drank a lot of those wines in the pandemic um and i was like i gotta go to Sai and see if he's willing to do this with me and they jumped on board right away mm -hmm. and so he was he said absolutely let's do this together let's figure out how we're going to make a low alcohol wine um and so it's been a real fun journey on that um and i'm really glad i have them as partners 
Um, so being a custom crush client of theirs, um, Siler, Siler drives the bus in terms of the winemaking and um, of course I consult and work with him on that sort of stuff, but um, I, I am not a winemaker. I don't play one on TV. Um, I will never um, aspire to do that. I let the, I let the experts do that. Um, and I realize that that's a little unique in this business too, to not be a winemaker and have your own brand. There's not too many of us that are on the sales and marketing side that uh, have their brands, but there's there's a couple. I was like, I was talking to Bill Hansen the other day of Libra Wines, and he's in the same sort of deal. Um, so I was like, what's it like? I said, he goes, oh, you're gonna be fine. I'm like, okay, if you say so, Bill. <laughs> you know, but it's fun. So then approaching it from the sales and marketing side, if you have you have your concept, you have low alcohol sparkling wine, very, you know, a very narrow concept there. Um, taking your strengths in sales and marketing, tell me about developing a name and developing kind of a strategy for how it's going to hit the market. If you've got some ideas, <laughs> I'll take them. So many ideas. You know, I mean, no I mean, you want to tell me how I should do this? Because, you know, I'm game. I, I, I don't know. I'm just going to try. I'm going to try my best. Um, I think... I mean, my, my concept is really staying small, so tiny production, tiny bubbles. Um, it's about 100 cases of each of the flavors between two different formats. So for me, half bottles are huge, and um, I think it's a growing market. Um, you know, obviously canned wine, you know, came onto the scene a number of years ago um, with Union Wine Company leading the way on that, which is awesome. Um, I really like, you know, like the 12, the 12 ounce beer bottle sort of mm -hmm. concept for bubbles. And so I've done that with Siler and um, it's, I, I think that that part is fun um, to give people options for, you know, if you don't want to open a whole bottle or, mm -hmm. or if it's just, yeah, just portion control, whatever it is, you know, if you just want to pull out a straw, stick in a straw drink straight from the bottle whatever you know like it's it's about wines that are just you know made to be enjoyed it's not being overly snobby about about the wine um, we only work with growers that um, have small family family um, owned vineyards um, so nothing I don't think we purchase fruit from anyone that's larger than like 20 acres um, and most are closer to three, probably, <laughs> in size. Uh, you know, pick a lot of our own grapes. Um, so it's, it's, it's truly that, you know, there's very few places I think that you can still start a brand mm -hmm. that, you know, like, if I were in Napa, I'm sure I, I, I could never afford to do it in Napa. You know, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's it's not cheap either to do it here, but you know, but I can say I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fully self-funded, like, you know, and that's that's a big deal when you start to to talk to people and then in, inventory builds up and all of that. But I'm hope, hopefully I'm primarily direct to consumer, selling to wine club, um, shipping around the country, of course. Um, you know, but also selling some locally and doing some fun events at different wine shops around town and some restaurants that have been good customers of mine over the years for other brands. Um, yeah, I think the, the wellness and the um, better for you category in wine is just exploding. So, um, 
you know, it's, it's interesting how some people, some people know about it and other people don't yet, <laughs> which is fine with me. Like, <laughs> it's fine if it's still a secret. Um, and it's interesting how some people think that the target market is one demographic over another, one generation over another. I'm finding that it's, it's not. It's, um, it really can be everything from, you know, the baby boomers down to, you know, what, what is it, Gen Y? What is, what's, what's, the youngest, what's the youngest drinking population? I think it's right Gen now? Z. Gen Z, thank you. The iGen. Yeah, 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 the, the Zers, you know, like, you know, and the millennials absolutely love the idea of lower alcohol wines or no alcohol wines. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, you know, the technology and um, the process um, is getting there, you know, it's getting, it's getting better and better mm -hmm. um, in terms of how, how you can deliver a wine that tastes great but is half the alcohol. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why well played? I always have liked the term, you know, like I always say, ah, oh, that's well played. Like I kind of like, well played, well played. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I, I could use that. You know, did a little research. No, not trademarked in, in the wine space. No, please don't, please don't trademark anything if you're listening to this, because I'm already doing that. <laughs> um, I don't want to be in violation. But yeah, so I, I liked it, yeah. So you mentioned first release this month, coming right up. Um, as you kind of look ahead to that and, and beyond, what is your goal? How, how big would you like to be? How, how, how do you see it playing out after this year? I see what you did there, just played out. <laughs> well played, sir. Totally well accident. played. Totally <laughs> accident. <laughs> it was all good things. It was uh, totally intended and intentional. Uh -huh. uh, of course I would like to grow. Um, it's funny when you're when you're like the one woman show, right? Like, I think I titled myself Boss Lady. Um, when you're just the party of one, doing all of the details and all of it, like, it's hard to find the time to start to be more strategic and do a longer term goal. Um, that's kind of next up on my list. But as I give myself time to daydream every now and then, um, I think, I think yeah, it would be great to grow. Um, I want to continue to expand and do a few more, um, few more wines as well. Um, maybe like these first two are blends um, of multiple varietals and all from the Willamette Valley. Um, and I still want to do Willamette Valley, but I'm thinking maybe we also switch it up and do some single, single varieties. Um, maybe play with some different alcohol levels, maybe some different styles, maybe more Petnat or Paquette. Um, you know, it's kind of everything's on the table still there. Be kind of fun to just continue to add new things. I definitely eventually want to do a method champenoise or two that are also low alcohol. Um, and that that has its own challenges, I think. Um, so we'll see. We'll see about that. All in good time. But yeah, I really next up, I really want to do a um, non-alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother animal in and of itself just because it's, um, instead of being regulated by the TTB, it's regulated by the FDA because it's a food. And yeah, but yet it still is wine, so. 
just a yeah. little more, a little more legal it's, work. Yeah, it's there's just a little more legwork to do. So I want to back up for a second and talk about 2020 uh, from your perspective. Uh, obviously, in the in the valley, there were two, two big things that year: the, the, the pandemic and, and the fires at Harvest. Uh, I'm curious uh, from your in your roles at, at the role at the time, uh, how the pandemic sort of affected what you were doing, and especially if you're thinking about getting a brand off the ground at some point. Yeah, yeah. So 2020. So yeah, like it's crazy to think back. Um, I was working for La Cadeo still, just been there about five years. Um, and I, you know, obviously having traveled like 40% of the time and then knowing that, you know, hey, we're grounded, not knowing how long we're going to be grounded for, but after a month goes by, it's kind of like, you can only, you, I, it, we felt like I could only do like 10% of my job. Mm -hmm. And I also knew that as a small business, I'm like, I can't. Like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to keep my job. Like, is he gonna be able to keep me on? Which is a fair question. Um, and so we had those discussions and um, I had another opportunity to end up and go work at Rocco as their direct sales manager for uh, Corby and Rollin. And, um, and so I decided to make that pivot. And I had always wanted to learn front of house a little bit more. Um, Obviously, from my retail years with the shop, I, I, I knew some of that, but I uh, really did want to kind of round out my supplier side of experiences, and that, uh, that was a move I made, and I, you know, I think it was a good move, and um, Tom and Deb wished me well, and totally understood, and you know it's 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 hard right you think back to that that march april time frame of 2020 it's like none of us knew what was really going on you know like and it was it was scary it was there's all the feels right but yeah it was great to be able to go to rocco um but i i think i joined them mid-april and then just a few weeks later, then we were opening back up to the world um, from the shutdown here in Oregon. And so trying to get the taste room ready to go and what that looked like was, you know, on another level from normal tasting room operations. Um, and that was, yeah, that was stressful. Like you're out, you're trying to learn a new job to begin with and get to know people, but also, yeah, trying to operate in a whole new way and still operate at a level of hospitality that people are going to feel safe and welcome and I mean that was looking back and like how, how did that even happen right like how could we be safe and but we were you know we just tried our best mm -hmm. we absolutely tried our best and I think I think we did a dang good job of it mm -hmm. um, was really good people working at Rocco mm -hmm. and so I enjoyed that and you know and people were super supportive right um, that's the awesome thing about Oregon wine as well is that people just if they if they support you and your brand they're they're in they're in for life right and it's like they care they legitimately care about your business and they want to see you thrive um, and that that brings me joy and great comfort too. Mm -hmm. 
the other part of 2020 obviously was harvest and, and all, all the things that we, with that. So I remember for us at the time, everyone was just kind of like, we just gotta get to harvest. We just gotta get to harvest. Everything will be okay if we get to harvest. I assume it was probably feeling like that in, in your world too. So tell me about that and how people, how you sort of saw people adjust to that and how you had to adjust to 2020. Yeah, I think, um that was really hard. That was a big low point. Yeah. Really big low point, I think, for for everybody in the Willamette Valley wine industry. That I mean, it just was like, it was hit after hit after hit, right? And then boom, we, we were really hopeful because it was looking like it was gonna be a great harvest. And then the fires. And um, fires for me personally, um, are triggering. <laughs> having gone to school at, in Malibu at Pepperdine and having major fires <laughs> that hit our camp down to our campus, both my freshman and senior years. Mm -hmm. um, so fire for me takes me back to that. And so that was triggering on a whole nother level. And I was like, oh, and I live in Newburgh. And so seeing the mm -hmm. flames come over the hill, um, yeah. It was not good. It was really, really tough. And it was, it was hard to see too. I, I mean, it was amazing to see the cellar staff at Rocco, um, Jared Sleet, and of course, Rollin Souls, um, just, you know, just kick it in on a whole nother level and just rise to the occasion like so many people do. Um, but Rollin said, you know, I mean, he's been in this industry for 40 years. He's like, I've never had a harvest like this, right? I've never, like, he's never had to do the micro ferments that he did and, you know, make those sort of decisions of, are you gonna make this wine, are you not? Are you gonna pick these grapes, are you not? Um, it was really tough to see that after an already hard six months, right? And with the pandemic, so. You know, I think now on the other side of it, being April of 2022, it's pretty cool to to taste some of these for those that did decide to make Pinot Noir or any sort of wines in 2020 to taste some of them and be like, wow, that's amazing, that's amazing, you know, and and be supportive of all those um, brands that did um, and and respectful of those that didn't. Um, we you know we have those discussions amongst the OPC committee and it's like, you know, everybody did what they needed to do, you know, and that's, that's the important thing and be respectful of that. And, and, and there's always something to learn about smoke and smoke, smoke affected grapes. And I've learned a lot about that over the last year or so and tasting some of the wines and I, I it's fascinating, right? I mean, you don't, you don't want to have to learn about that stuff, but I mean, it's also not probably going to go away. It probably won't be the last time that we have an incident like that, given climate change. You know, so we need to we need to learn from it and figure out because not everybody's going to be able to sit it out every year. You know, it's it's too much of a financial hit. Uh, the biggest, the, the, it's okay. The, the, the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon wine since you were kind of first aware of it, and, and what the industry looks like in 2022. Where does the industry stand right now? Mm. Um, absolutely. I think, I think the crazy thing is looking at 
I think in 2005, there were maybe 200 wineries in the Willamette Valley. And, you know, now we're over 500 or they're probably less than 200 back then if I go back and look at the numbers. Um, yeah, but we're over 500 now here in just the Willamette and almost 1,000 for statewide, I think. Um, which is really exciting and I mean it's still a lot less than obviously California but um, and production wise we're a lot tinier than California but I think it's it's exciting to see the wines kind of now really firmly on the world stage like world-class wines um, I mean right now this week and we are wrapping up the first ever collectors collectors auction for the Willamette Valley Wineries Association that we've partnered with Zaki's auction house and these wines are being bid on by worldwide bidders right now and that, that's exciting and um, it's the first time ever Zaki's done a Willamette Valley based auction in their history so I think Continuing to push that envelope, continuing to raise that bar, um, I think the sky's the limit for us in terms of the industry for this valley. And I can't wait to see what it's going to be like 10 years from now, right, to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Let's have this conversation 10 years from definitely. now. Well, because, like, definitely. you know, like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really amazing to see even some of the brands 10 years ago where they are now and production levels and notoriety and growth and and to see what these vineyards and the older vines and how they how they mature and evolve and the different varietal makeup as well um, within the valley and how how does that change and how does you know how does climate change change that if at all for some people um, you know how do we how do we ebb and flow because I, you know, that one word in 2020 that we all hate, that pivot word, <laughs> we're still going to have to keep pivoting, mm -hmm. you know, whether we like it or not. Seems to be an industry full of people who can do that and sometimes enjoy the challenge of doing that. Has that been your, has that been kind of your perspective as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that there are people that, um, are almost born or well suited to pivoting just naturally like that's just in their character and their makeup um not so much for me <laughs> I, I gotta say although i have gotten much better at it haven't we all and now right now maybe i am gonna expect to do it more and more and maybe it just i, I think yeah like the process of building a brand has helped me do that as well and like to trust and work with other people and you know my label designers and um, all of it right like it's like okay yeah no you know you know what's best like I'm gonna trust that and go with that or if there's something I am absolutely wedded to then I'm I'm gonna do it too right like I'm going with that um, but having the ability to take those those that input from others that know what they're doing I think that's important well it seems like it's a good time as any to wrap up <laughs> any other, anything I we didn't uh, talk about anything we should have any questions I should have asked that I didn't hmm. I don't 
think so. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for talking through it. Thank you. And uh, giving us a chance to hear your story and hear your perspectives. And we'll let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.